Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom, he, him, and Don Lister, she, her. A podcast from Anahata Yoga Centre, where we hold insightful, healing, and nurturing conversations with inspiring people from healing yoga and well-being communities. Enjoy our podcast. Hello, this is Don Lister, she, her, joined today as always by my wonderful co-host, Daniel Groom, he, him. And we are joined by the wonderful Evan Saraka. No, that is that correct pronunciation? Soroka. Soroka, I knew I'd get it wrong. Shocking. Soroka. And tell us what, tell us the name, what the, your name means. It means uh, a thieving bird in Ukrainian. I love like that. Like a magpie or a, a crow. Like, let's, instead of thieving, let's reframe it and say a very intelligent bird. I like that. That like lives that. in partnership with its mate its entire life. <laughs> That's I was I was just explaining to Evan before we come on air that um, the word bird is kind of like a, a sort of a, a cockney, which is um, cockney is like a sort of language that certain places in London, like East London, used to speak. And a bird was a woman, <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> just seems really funny coming from Essex, a thieving bird. <laughs> I wonder if that's politically correct anymore, Daniel, to call I know, I know. But it's so funny when you hear people using that language because mm -hmm. to us, we would understand exactly what mm -hmm. someone was saying when they referred to someone as a bird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but to many other people, they wouldn't have a clue what that meant, would they? So, you know, it's definitely a sort of localised language, isn't it, that definitely is out of date. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I, never, I never liked being called a bird. I found it really condescending and patronising, because actually it is, really, isn't it? You know, I, I was watching something on TV the other day, and the, 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 it was like a, from the '90s, and it was a a law firm, and they were they were saying to the when the woman came in, they were saying things like, "Oh, you look nice. That's a really good good suit," and all this rubbish. No one commented on the men. And I, I think like we've come a long way, but still we are patronised, aren't we? For you know the comment on how we look whether we look nice no one would say to you Daniel when you turned up to teach oh you look nice today but they quite often say that to me with a tone of surprise in their voice I have to say you just like oh my goodness you look nice today I'm like yeah I washed my hair thanks <laughs> that's but what I always say I washed my hair <laughs> it makes a difference when my hair's washed everything looks better I don't know what maybe it's because I've had a shower I don't know who knows who knows anyway i'm sorry i mispronounced your name i am shockingly bad with pronunciations probably daniel should do the introduction but we are that's where we are anyway evan is the author of yoga therapy for diabetes so i'm really looking forward to this conversation she's also a certified yoga therapist and and the rumor mill says that you really know your stuff uh, <laughs> So I, I'm excited for this. I'm sure it's going to be a rich, diverse and interesting conversation. Evan is from Colorado, a place on my wish list. Um, I really, really want to visit Colorado one day. It sounds just the most incredible, spacious, clear aired place. That's, that's what's in my imagination anyway. So um, maybe we'll come visit you one day. So welcome, Evan. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on the podcast with you both. 
Thank you. So Daniel, tell me, we've just come back from our meeting, haven't we? We've had our weekly business meeting where we talk about everything um, and nothing. And we had it in the sea today, didn't we? How good was that? We did. We had a, we had a wet meeting, didn't we? It wasn't very good for taking notes. We <laughs> <laughs> forget everything. <laughs> no, we've got a really unusually hot September here. Um, it's quite intense at the moment. So we thought rather than sitting indoors, why not get out and enjoy the beautiful sea that's on our doorstep? So, yeah, we had our meeting in the sea, didn't we? And we bumped into someone that we needed to speak to about being on the podcast. That was a bit of a winner, really, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a win-win situation. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So apart from swimming, what have you been up to this week, Daniel? What's What's been happening? I um, Actually, I had a really, really great weekend this weekend. Um, I was really scared about kind of this was going out into a really public place for the first time. Um, we went to this festival in London um, which if it hadn't have been for what the festival stood for I don't think I would have gone just because I wasn't so sure about being around so many people and there was literally tens of thousands of people at this festival but it's this festival called Mighty Hoopla and it's just a celebration of queer people and it was the most amazing festival you know I've I felt in lockdown really disconnected from my community and was really craving being around other people who are queer and are unapologetic about the way that they are and what they want to wear and the way they express themselves. And I was really kind of feeling very kind of disconnected from that. And to go to this festival and to just be around people who were just dressed in the most amazing outfits, you know, really, really great music, and just a joy. It really was a joy. So I'm feeling reconnected with my queer community again, which was the purpose of going. So it was it was really, really great. Sounds wonderful. Is it like um like a music thing? So lots of music and dancing? Yeah, it's essentially like they have different bands on, mostly from the sort of 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then different sort of DJ music stages. Um, but then they've got like a couple of big cabarets sets as well. So they have different sort of performance artists and drag people um, and people that they interview as well. Um, but it was just lovely just to be amongst literally tens of thousands of people and for me there's this big thing about when I go to events that are a little bit more heteronormative I always find there's a kind of I always feel like I have to filter myself whereas it was just amazing to be there and just to be able to be you know what you can tell everyone is just being whoever they want to be you know and maybe 18 months of being contained and not being able to go to those sort of things made it a catalyst for people to be even more expressive than what they was maybe if it had just been running along, you know, every year as it normally would have been. But yeah, mm. I feel full of queerness today. <laughs> I love it. Oh my goodness. Well, what, I saw, how have you I been, saw... Dawn? Yeah, okay. I mean, last week I said oh, my energy's been really, really low, hasn't it? Because I'm still struggling with long COVID or whatever it is. Um, 
I discovered, found out that there's locally a hyper hyperbolic oxygen chamber. I think that's what it's called, where they basically put you in this tube and fill it up with pressurized oxygen, which is supposed to be quite good for long COVID and other sort of long term chronic illnesses and they use it to support can people who are having cancer treatment and ms and all that kind of thing so and they're a i think they're a charity so yeah i've got that book so i'm quite i'm looking forward to to going and trying that seeing if that helps the old lungs um i had quite a good week actually because my energy is starting to come back up so i'm having to be careful not to like do 100 things um so i, I started a tai chi class because i went to see um shang chi the new marvel film oh my god i want to be shang chi I'm having i'm having a i'm having a personality crisis it was incredible so i remembered when i came out at half past 11 at night that i had this old tai chi teacher so i texted him first thing in the morning and said are you still teaching he is so um i went to tai chi class i was the youngest in the room by 25 years given that i'm 50 everybody was properly old and uh, it was great. So yeah, I did tie some Tai Chi. And then I went to the theatre last night and saw Philippa Perry, who is Grayson Perry's wife. Have you heard of Grayson Perry, Evan? No, I haven't. Okay, so Grayson Perry, I'm really surprised. I know you're going to check him out because you're going to love him. He's um, a multimedia artist. He's He won like some huge, huge prizes. And he's a, he basically is like an artistic commentator on on society it's amazing and I hate to introduce her as his wife but she is and that's kind of how she came to the public knowledge but she's a psychotherapist and she had like um an in conversation evening with her so I dragged my husband along he's like oh god it's gonna be like going to work with you um but actually by the end of it he went and got her book because he thought she was so incredible because she is incredible she she basically spent the whole night answering all these questions and the answer was to every question pretty much was this is about you it's not about them stop pointing fingers which actually is yoga isn't it you know this is what yoga's about it's like it's all about your internal transformation so I was sitting there the whole way like nodding my head and looking at my husband and going see that's what I say that's what I say <laughs> he's like shut up <laughs> so no, if, you, if you ever get a chance wherever you are in the world to hear it Philippa Perry or check out Grace and Perry I would do it and tell them that I sent you in advance i will when i get out of my little hole here my little beautiful hole of the roaring fork valley <laughs> oh it sounds wonderful so what about you well, I've, I've had a quite a nice busy week which has been lovely because i've spent so many weeks lying on my back looking at the ceiling feeling sorry for myself what have you been up to evan anything inspiring Yes, I've been up to a lot of things this week. I'm trying to recall what the last week was. It's been a lot of different things. One is promoting the book. Two is I'm starting to get back into teaching publicly, which is something I haven't done in about two years. So I led a yoga nidra retreat last week, which was really fun. Um, it was just so lovely to have students in, in the flesh. Mm. I forgot how much I missed that. And to have that separation of nearly two years, it's always nice. It's like a nice metric to see your own growth as a teacher. Mm. Um, so it really felt, it just felt 
gratifying and reconnecting. Mm. And then I'm also, I, I run lots of programs online. So part of my work is a yoga therapist for general yoga therapy. I'm also a yoga teacher, um, but subsect of my work, as you can tell from the book, is with working with people with diabetes. So I'm running a program right now specifically for people with type one diabetes. And uh, they're just this amazing group of, of humans. They're all over the world. And just seeing them receive the teachings through the lens of their experience with diabetes and seeing how, that it, how it's informing their relationship with diabetes and the way that they're taking care of themselves in just a few weeks. Like I'm just constantly floored by, you know, their growth. And, and that's what I say to them. Like, this is you, you know, this is not me. This is you experiencing this. This is your experience. Um, and it's just been a really wonderful, gratifying week as a teacher, because I think for teachers, what you desire more than anything is for for the teachings to transmit through you and to land in a way that can be effective uh, and transformative for whomever's in front of you. That's that's the mm -hmm. desire, right? That's mm -hmm. the purpose. And it, it really felt good this week. It really felt like um, it was landing. Mm. Did you, um, during lockdown, did you teach a lot online or did you take a sabbatical? I did mostly a sabbatical. I was writing the book, mm. to be honest with you. And when I was doing that, I had to really stop everything. Mm. I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm not good at multitasking, but I can do maybe two things at once, not mm. five. Um, and so I, I had to stop mostly everything and, and teach. And I was lucky because my husband, he's a private chef. And so he was able to hold down the fort for us during mm -hmm. that time because uh, in Aspen, the area I live in, private chefing just like exploded through the roof of people wanting, you know, really good food to be created for them at their house. <laughs> so yeah, so, so I, I, I stopped, I had to take pause and, you know, Prior to COVID, I was already going through a, a pretty radical transformation of being a group asana teacher at a studio to having a private clinic where I was working more intimately uh, and specifically with, with people with, um, let's say, conditions or issues that they wanted to work on. So more in a therapeutic sense versus I don't want to say group classes are strictly entertainment, but they can be. Mm. So I was already making that transition. Mm. And and then COVID happened and I just had to kind of pause and pivot and figure out how it was going to move next. I'm still mm. kind of in that. It's fun. Mm. It's I, I, I really hear what you're saying. I, I when I graduated from yoga therapy training there was about a, a, almost like a sort of two year period where I kind of felt like I had my sort of foot in two camps and it was kind of like, I can't even, I really struggle to this day to teach classes 
and then switch into yoga therapy mode. I kind of have to have days where I'm like, okay, I'm yoga therapist today. (laughs) And that yoga therapist is very different to someone that is holding a group space. But then weirdly, when you do like you're doing, holding a group space, but within a therapeutic setting, that again takes on a whole new realm, doesn't it? Of, you know, how how to make that space feel safe and comfortable and allow people to be able to express and take what they need to take from those trainings. And you need to be in very different headspaces to do all of those things. But then there's traits that run across all of them that are parts of just being a yoga practitioner. We're shapeshifters, aren't we? We truly are. And it's and it's interesting, isn't it? I think our our work as teachers really evolves as we go through our life. I've really seen over the decades I've been teaching the, you know, the, the transition from high, much more powerful, high energy into a more therapeutic practice. And I would see now very much a much more introspective approach to the practice. It's very personal, even in a group space. It's very much about creating um lots of options for people lots and lots of options lots of um different ways of entering into a sense of who you are in your own personal journey whether that be through your asana through your meditation practice or you know just your presence in the room at that time let's talk about why you're here because it's nice to chat (laughs) but let's talk about your incredible book so tell us a little bit about about how you came to be interested in this particular topic and what brought you to write the book well it's life experience i've i've had type 1 diabetes for 24 years now so majority of my life i was diagnosed when i was 13 which is kind of a typical age for for diagnosis, type one diabetes is what was commonly known as is juvenile diabetes. It's, it's changed; the names have changed. So it's 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 something that typically comes on as a child or an adolescent. Although now many adults are becoming diagnosed with something known as latent adult autoimmune disease, which is like a subsect of type one. So it's an autoimmune disease. Um, and like any 13 year old, we're all going through plenty of changes and challenges, figuring out who we are in the world, managing emotions, growing up, creating a space between ourselves and our parents, those kinds of things. I struggled not only with figuring out diabetes, but figuring out myself in relationship to it and everything else that was going on. And I remember it being a very chaotic, dramatic, emotional time of my life where I was consistently seeking ways to numb myself so I wasn't feeling the reality of what was going on. And I think that there was a part of me that recognized that that wasn't healthy or wasn't who I was. And 
long story short, that continued for several years until a friend of mine had gone to a yoga class and she was just as angsty as me. Like she was the instigator in so much of the process of what was going on and how we were numbing or how we were avoiding or rebelling. And I just remember her whole being was different. And there was a, a like a piece and a, a pause in her that I recognized as a part of who I was or who I could potentially be. And she had, you know, it was yoga. She had gone to one class, one class, and there was an immediate impact in her whole aura. And there was a magnetism for me about it. It was like, as if I had been looking at myself. Um, and the next day, I don't know if it was the next day or next few days, I just went to a class on my own. And I started to go on my own by myself uh, regularly. And it was never comfortable. <laughs> I never really wanted to go, but what I received afterwards was this like post effect of it that is the reason why I kept going back. I just felt more myself, more myself. And that was starting to trickle into my relationship with diabetes and to myself. And so that's kind of a long-winded way of describing why I wrote this book. Uh, but my, my whole life since a teenager has been both diabetes and yoga. And I went on to become a yoga therapist. I was certified in 2015 and started just with my own curiosity to offer things specific to people with type one diabetes. And I was approached to write a book. I had no idea that that was in the cards for me. And so I like a good challenge. And the, the book that you've written is, you know, I, I've read through it and the, the detail is, you know, phenomenal. And reading this, I'm, weirdly, I've never worked with someone directly who has type one diabetes. So a lot of it was kind of unknown information. You know, you kind of, you know, a little bit about it going through yoga therapy school, but you know, unless you work with someone specifically, there's so many nuances and so many different ways that people are affected by type one diabetes. And what I really got, got, got from this book was you really looked at kind of the different yoga models and ways that yoga can be applied for all different stages of people's responses to diabetes, type 1 diabetes. And, and that's what really came and across. Two. And type 2, yeah. And I suppose when you were writing this book, what was the what was the outcome that you wanted the readers to, to take away from it? Because I suppose you've got two different audiences. You've got people like me who are working with people with diabetes. And then you've got people that have diabetes that actually maybe need something a little more solid to be able to, to, to support them through all the different changes that they're going through. Yeah, on one level, my publishers wanted the book to be written for yoga therapists. 
They're yoga therapy specific publishing house singing dragon. They're wonderful. But on the other end, on the personal end, there was a great desire to provide like a scaffolding for someone with any type of diabetes, type one, type two, gestational, just to understand their condition on a much deeper level through a holistic lens mm -hmm. and have that equally backed by as much evidence-based research as I could muster. Because I'm not a science writer, but I felt that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what diabetes is in the community at large, whether or not people have diabetes, even people with diabetes, despite education, the standard of diabetic care, learning how to manage diabetes, there's not enough, let's say, information or time given to truly explain to someone what is actually happening on a biological level and how that biology is influencing your psychology, what's going on in your mind, your attitudes, your perceptions, your behaviors. And the beauty of yoga and why I feel like it's such a necessary and perhaps a missing link in the standard of medical care for all types of any type of illness, right? Is this ability for someone who has a disease to view themselves first rather than to look just at the disease itself, mm. right? So it's, it's more of a, a, a patient-centric model where people can look at how diabetes in this instance is unfolding in a unique way within the person. So I believe that not only yoga can be a, a, a missing link, but it can be a way for someone to not only improve their health with a condition that they're living with, but to use that as a springboard or a platform for them to know themselves on a more intimate level. Mm -hmm. I was going to just ask a little bit more about that because obviously with with the diagnosis of diabetes, type one diabetes is with you for a lifetime. Yeah. Type two can be changed in certain instances um, due to lifestyle. And actually it would be really interesting to hear or for you to explain the difference between type one and type two, because I don't think there's a lot of understanding particularly about it. Yeah. Type two gets a lot more media coverage, I would suggest, because there's quite a lot of shame around type two diabetes and this whole thing about it being a lifestyle thing and the lifestyle being linked to food, which as we know, and we've explored Dawn and I in many podcasts, this whole thing around food shaming and, you know, actually people that are living in poverty have no choice but to eat in certain ways, yeah. you know, and this whole thing around diabetes type 2 being, you know, a, a, a 
like your fault, like they're at yeah, fault. Absolutely. For it. Yeah. You should have done better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of this, you should have done better. I'm know. actually going to be doing um, a presentation on this for um, Giovanna's. Uh, he's doing the accessible yoga conference. I'm going to do a little thing for that on this very topic. So Amazing. <laughs> I'll be tuning in. <laughs> um, Giovanna's on here in a couple of weeks, actually. Oh, awesome. <laughs> good community he's got a book coming out too so the difference just in a nutshell is type one is an autoimmune condition meaning at some point the immune system begins to attack cells as if they were foreign invaders and in the case of type one diabetes uh, the body is attacking the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas. And so what happens is that progressively, and actually it's not even that progressive, it's pretty fast when it happens, the body can't produce any insulin and it stops being able to produce insulin. Although there are some cases where people catch it early on enough now in more of a modern sense, um, where they're able to retain some level of insulin function uh, production, but it doesn't last for very long. So. Type one diabetes people are, they're insulin dependent. And I can tell you, it's one of the most frustrating things as a person with type one diabetes to have people, unfortunately in the holistic community to make suggestions about how, if you, you know, eat raw honey or egg whites or that try this spray that you're gonna cure your diabetes. It's like, no, sorry. Hate to break it to you, I'm always going to have to take insulin. And the mere suggestion that I could potentially change this, don't you think that more people would have done that already? So just in it, you can tell. <laughs> I've, I've heard it lots of times. Uh, just last week, I had a Vedic astrologer recommend to me a spray. And I was like, dude, we're not, we're not doing a session, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> it's like, once that happens, I'm just, I'm kind of done. Um, even though I do attempt to educate uh, to the best of my ability. Uh, sorry, that's a tangent there. That's a little bit personal. No, and do you, know, do you know what? It's something that comes up time and time and time again. Um, Dawn, I think you probably have something to say about this. <laughs> I just, it astounds me, the community that we all work in and, and live in, because it's, it's a family, isn't it, really, in many ways. Um, the number of people that suddenly become scientists with PhDs overnight. It's, I'm astonished, actually, by the level of instant, amazing information that they have to hand to tell you how to live your life better. And the number of people that have said to me since I, I've been poorly that I just need to go and have a gong bath and I'll be all right, or go and have some sound therapy or, you know, meditate a little bit more because if you your mind was in a better state you wouldn't be so tired they you know and, and the people you hear you know making dreadful comments about people getting cancer you know that they've brought it on themselves because of their mindset and you know it's 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 cruel it's, it's arrogant cruel. it's cruel it is it's ignorant it's lots of things I mean we live in a culture where everyone knows something about everything but there's no depth to it mm. That's the thing I had yesterday, two days ago, I was walking down the street and I was basically harangued by a person 
who for 25 minutes started ranting at me about vaccines and every, you know anything to do with lockdown and the government and I mean it came from nowhere I was like hi how are you and then bam 25 minutes I had to literally just leave like walk away and leave and I just kept saying look we don't agree let's agree to disagree I'm not getting into an argument with you and they kept telling me how intelligent they were and how they had medical training this person was a childminder like I've made you know you don't have medical training you may have read some journals which I'm sure are biased to your point of view and I respect your right to hold that point of view 100% but don't be stopping people in the street and telling them that everything's a conspiracy COVID's not real we just need to improve our immune system and off the back of that, you know, not uh, not thinking about how I might receive that information. That person didn't know I had COVID. They didn't know I'd lost someone to COVID. They don't know what my personal belief system is and how that was going to impact. I mean, as it happened, I was irritable, but it didn't like spoil my day. But I was just, it's like a punch, you know. And I feel like the world has lost its compassion gene. This COVID situation has been rather than bring people together, it's been deeply divisive. And I think your point in this lack of depth of knowledge is the thing. It's, there is no depth of knowledge for these conversations because if there was, they would be able to recite references and they would be a little bit kinder, I think, in the way that they approach these conversations. I'm I always rent. wonder when, when it's coming from you know that, that intensity, it's like, what are the motivations? What is really going on behind the scenes? Mm. I, I don't even think it's about the vaccine or about mm. this or that. It, it, it's like we were talking about before we started recording. It's not even about you. It's about, it's them. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's them. I, I, I have a sense that it comes from an inability to realize the privilege that they're sitting within yeah spot on daniel because if spot they on. was aware they wouldn't want to harm somebody else by having mismanaged information mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. spot yeah. on spot yeah. on so, so back to your question yeah about i wanted to go into type 2 diabetes before mm -hmm. but, um so so we can frames it quite well i think doesn't it <laughs> so so type 2 represents about 95% of the population with diabetes that's why we typically hear the word diabetes and associate it with the disease of type 2 diabetes which is um, it's a chronic illness there are many causative factors it can be genetic like hereditary something can trigger it to turn on like some form of chronic stress right there's there's lots of external factors including diet including environmental factors things that turn on genetic predispositions mm. right and so the whole conversation of you know you caused your diabetes to happen is just it's it's ignorant because we can't put place blame mm -hmm. especially when there is such a lack of resources for so many people mm -hmm. and how they live their lives 
constantly battling and fighting for survival. It's, it's, it's an epidemic, you know, it's happening everywhere in all types of communities, every, every color, right? Every socioeconomic strata, it's, 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 it occurs in, in the United States, 34% of the population is pre-diabetic, meaning that their, their blood glucose threshold is on the, the edge of potentially turning into type two diabetes. So it, it's, it's happening everywhere. And yes, we could say, yes, lifestyle definitely has a part of it for sure. Um, but there are so many other factors at hand and type two can be potentially reversible in some situations. One, if it's uh, detected early enough and there are preventative measures taken, be it dietary changes, um, physical exercise is one of it. Stress reduction is another. There are so many things that um, can potentially help taking different types of oral medications that can reduce insulin resistance can potentially help reverse or keep things under control. And, and I don't like using that word control, but what it essentially means is that if, if someone can regulate their blood glucose levels, they're going to dramatically lower their risk for complications. Um, so there's, there's a lot of factors at play. Um, but I, I think that just in, in general, uh, there's, there's a lot of misinformation and, and misunderstanding about uh, diabetes itself. So if, if someone was to come to one of your workshops or see you on a one-to-one -one basis, what would you be wanting to find out from that person to, to support them using the, 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 the model, you know, within the, or the models that you have within the book and also, you know, the sort of wider yoga therapy scope that we both have in common? Yeah. I think as a yoga therapist, number one, we're looking for what the red flags may be, how to prevent things from becoming aggravated or um, pushed further, right? Again, there's also a need to find a doorway in, and that's the beauty of a yoga therapist is their, their, their gift of assessment and ability to, in effect, create a or prescribe, I don't know if prescribes the right word, um, provide a practice that will support an individual's constitution as well as their personal needs and goals. So on one level, you're, you're supporting what someone desires, but in another level, maybe more subtle that they might not even be aware of, you're considering what they might need. So it depends. Sometimes someone needs a little bit more pushing or hand-holding. Sometimes people need just the direction and they're gonna follow through. 
sometimes a little bit of both. But ultimately what it's about is creating something that a person can utilize that will provide with them a sense of peace, wholeness, and that will eventually help them realize that they are in charge of their condition and that that provides self-agency in their life. That they have self-reference of what's going on and that they have the confidence to continue to show up for themselves and, and beyond their practice that the practice supports their life. I was just reflecting um, on two things. You mentioned a little while ago that diabetes can be turned on through stress, which is something I didn't know. And I imagine if I didn't know it, lots of other people didn't know it either. And I think I'm sure you would agree you know, we all work with people in the yoga world and in the therapeutic environment, stress levels are climbing. They're not, despite the fact we all know it, we know that the lifestyle that we lead, perhaps, you know, the how connected we are, which on one hand can be wonderful, on the other hand can be a curse, you know, how all switched on we are all the time, how fast our life can be. It's a massive stressor. We're aware of it, but it almost seems impossible to step back sometimes and find a balance so it's really interesting to hear you say it can be switched on we can develop diabetes through a traumatic event or through high stress situations would you say that part of what the framework that you're offering and that you're suggesting to people who come to come to you or who are reading your book with diabetes is that is reducing stress and getting a handle on their life holistically a big part of the offering. Definitely. It's first becoming aware of the impact of stress and, and in effect, transforming our relationship with it. Because I think like anything like stress, we can put this, this negative word on it. Mm. When in fact, it's really about resilience, our ability to withstand stress and also be able to turn it off. So it's not about never experiencing stress. It's about being able to work with it and to navigate intensity, acute stressors, and be able to turn off our body's responses to that just as readily as we can turn it on. I feel like, and, and that's resilience is your ability to bounce back. And what's happening is people can't bounce back because they're turned on all the time. Mm. And so their adaptive responses become attenuated or weakened. And every little thing can be the, the, the button that's pushed to set them off. And this is the divisiveness that we're living in as well right now. You know, you go out on the street and people are angry and you're just taking in all this information all the time. Um, so one level of this conversation is what, like, what is a cause? What is a cause for a disease process? 
Another level of this conversation is when you already have a chronic disease, how stress management is also an essential part of protecting yourself, protecting what functions remain and understanding that you're already at a deficit. So I'm thinking of you mm -hmm. like long haul COVID symptoms, there's mm -hmm. already a deficit. Mm -hmm. How imperative it is for us to use the knowledge of what we have and these practices that have been around for thousands and thousands of years to support us um, to live our lives in, in I, I'm searching for the word, I can't say it's harmony. I don't love that word, but to live our lives with this navigation of the seas of change. Mm. Yeah, it's that, I think that's I think that's a really beautiful and um, helpful response. I was having this exact conversation with our client yesterday, who also has a chronic health condition and is deeply in deficit. And what I noticed as I was listening to the conversation unravel was, and this I have these conversations with people all the time because it's the way people seem to be is, I know I'm in deficit, I know I'm on my knees, but I need to keep going. I was kind of so counterintuitive, like actually I'm on my knees, so I need to lie down and build my strength back up. You know, I need, but sometimes that's not possible for some people, you know, if they're in a place where the, I don't know, have to provide shelter for themselves, they have to continue working, they've got sick family members around them, or they're in, you know, Jesus, just let's look around the world. Half the world's got ridiculous, life-threatening trauma going on right now. It's terrifying, actually. But actually what we need and what this client and I were discussing was the need to, all right, maybe I can't stop, but I can put some good stuff in. So I can put a structure, I call it like a scaffolding. Okay, so I've got to do XXX today. But what I could do is a yoga nidra practice and I could go for a walk. Or at the moment, I'm not walking, I'm driving to the beach and I'm getting in the sea and then I'm driving home because I can't do all of it. Yeah. So it's like work. And I know that what I can do is put more green food in my body because that makes me feel better. Right. And, you know, and, and then and just putting these scaffolds in that are going to support us in our recovery. And, and I think being patient with it as well, isn't it? Because it's not a five minute thing. If you're chronically ill, you're not going to be better in two weeks. It's going to take time. I mean, could you speak perhaps a little bit about that kind of process that you that you discuss in the book? It's small, small snacks of wellness throughout the day and prioritizing it. It's, it's like this shift cognitively of understanding that if we either, if we do less or if we choose something that might be counter counterintuitive to the natural process of going and pushing and striving and that, that in fact, we're actually going to be stronger for it. Mm. And that weaving in small moments of presence throughout our day mm. can be just as effective as what a long practice would be, mm. right? So that, that then in fact, we're living it and it's that, living that infuses every action 
of that choice, right? Of deciding mm -hmm. to take a walk instead of, you know, whatever it is you could do, whether that would be scrolling on your Instagram feed or, you know, listening to the news or I, I don't know, I'm just throwing out examples of like a choice of like, I'm at, and, and, or I'm going to go on a walk and instead of putting my headphones on and listening to this podcast, that's just reinforcing all of this fear and information we're constantly having, I'm going to go on a walk and I'm not going to listen to anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to just do 10 minutes and breathe as I move and look at the sun and, and to appreciate the moment that can be brought into every moment, but it's so challenging to remember that when we're in the momentum of, of, of the everyday, mm -hmm. right? And the value that's so placed on the fight, mm -hmm. right? It's very, it's very masculine, right? I was just going to share a reflection that I had around, especially during lockdown, um, feeling like my structure had been took away. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I was left with lots of space, but not knowing what to do with that space and it being easy to just drop back into those habits of, this is how I occupy my time. And I think what I've tried to learn is exactly what you've just said. Just have little pockets through the day where it can be five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, two minutes, where I can just check in with how I'm doing, but allowing myself not to be attached that that doesn't have to happen at the same time every day. The mm -hmm. same things don't have to happen every day. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, our lives have gone from being very structured and busy in one way to being very unstructured, but equally as busy or not busy, depending on how, you know, the, the pandemic kind of fell with your employment or, you know, your situation. And I think one of the hardest things for us as practitioners is to not get attached to any of those practices. It's just to be, okay, I have a moment. This is what I can do. Yeah. And is that thing going to support me or is that thing actually going to feed into my habits or ways of numbing that I have been using? Right. It's not so much what you're doing, it's how you're doing it, right? What's the level of, um, I don't want to say intensity, but the meaning that you're bringing to it. Mm. And I suppose what, 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 what clients of ours and, you know, us as people that navigate the yoga world currently is we are sold that you have to do it in a certain way. You know, it has to be in a class or it has to, you know, the thought of doing something on Zoom, you know, two years ago, you know, 90% of people would have been, no, 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 that's not going to work, never going to happen. Do you know what I mean? That's, you know, that's just for conversations in, in offices. Right. <laughs> but for some, somehow we managed to make it work. And actually for people to realize that yoga is this 
set of tools that's a gift that's given to them and we can pick those little bits that we need and they only need to be moments or they might be really long periods of time if we have the opportunity but fundamentally it's about learning how we use those tools isn't it and how we navigate our way through through them yeah it's beautiful Evan, can i, can I um, just pick your brains a little bit more you said and i think our listeners would really benefit from hearing a little bit more about this you said it's not what we do it's how we do it could you say a little bit more about that i think so often we're striving for perfection like we want things to be perfect before we even actuate them mm. or that it has to look a certain way for it to be valuable it's not so much what you're doing it's the the energy behind your why and your motivation where is it coming from is it coming from a feeling of lack or fear or can it be infused with this love and compassion and compassion it's like the the ultimate self-care vibe of, of just being open to one's unique potential of saying, I don't know, I don't know anything, but I'm open to it. And arriving from that space, it doesn't have to be big to be profound. That's why closing your eyes and taking three breaths before you walk into a space where you know you're on your bus ride and it's been a crazy day and just dropping into observing your breath it doesn't have to be big to be incredibly profound and i think that the teachings have shown me that in so many ways that the most mundane everyday experiences can be the most transformative mm. I think that's a, I think that's really helpful because there's an awful lot of people I meet and certainly myself in my own circumstances, you know, I've got children, I've got businesses, I can't just disappear off to the Himalayas if you never wanted to, you know, wherever we are, we can, we can transform that because we can transform our point of view. So you might have a whole lot of responsibilities. It is not possible for you to walk away from to create an Instagram worthy practice but you can have your practice at your desk, on your walk to work, at the dinner table with your family, you know, just changing. I think that's, a, for me, that's quite a big thing, actually. You know, my kids are all adults now. So if anyone's in the house at the same time, you know, trying to get us all eat together is interesting. But, you know, we always sat at the table together in the evening and ate and phones away caused a lot of swearing and arguing when they were teenagers, but phones away, we're going to talk, we're going to eat you know and all right there would be arguments and there would be all sorts happening but it was communication and it was a it was connection so i hear what you're saying is wherever you are and however it looks you can find a way of bringing a sense of realness and spaciousness and i guess for me i'm hearing a connection to your inner wisdom within the moment yeah 
Going back to our friend, Tracy Stanley, she has got such a wonderful chapter in her book, Radiant Rust, about like the householder's flow. Oh, I love it. Oh my God, I read it twice. Real practices for people who are actually not living in a a monastery. (laughs) That's a few of us. There's quite a few of us. Wonderful suggestions in that. (laughs) Wonderful suggestions. She she alludes to a good friend of ours who had just had a, a baby um and she was like I don't have any time Mm. and having those small moments that were very meaningful yeah Yeah. I I remember years ago when I was um working with our particular Buddhist school and the teacher was incredible she was incredible but she hadn't she had no real life you know, she lived in the community. She, yes, she was married, but they didn't actually live together because her husband lived in another community and didn't work and didn't have kids and wasn't going to have kids. So her work, her life was meditation and teaching and everything was provided for her. And I used to always think, you're saying these really incredible wise things, but they're not based on anything real. You, you can't, I don't believe you. <laughs> I just don't believe you. And and I, I really felt like you, the real work is, is, in, is in life. Like, yeah, you remove yourself from life if you want to for a bit to restore and build your energy. You know, it's like a little spiritual holiday, isn't it, going on retreat? <laughs> it's great. You know, you can immerse yourself in some deep practices and have space for reflections and be with like-minded people. But actually, you know, how helpful is that in the long term to have this incredible life that we've all got the chance to have, you know, meeting diverse people, having diverse experiences, being in the world, you know, why remove yourself from that? Right. Why? Re- and, and then it's like the, the practices onto themselves are quite limiting if they're not serving mm. your larger worldview. Mm. Right. Mm. Because it's meant to, this is meant to be lived. It's meant to be experienced mm. in all different colors and moments right it's not just skittles and rainbows this thing no it's not (laughs) and i think that that's kind of kind of the problem with um let's say the piousness of of lots of communities yoga communities and especially like we're supposed to be constantly living in this state of samadhi and that that's like the aim and the goal and that 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 And then unless we're attaining that, that somehow we're lesser. And I see so many students and I've seen myself go through through phases of like, well, I've experienced so much. I've learned so much, but yet I continue to go back to the same place of suffering. And then this judgment and guilt, like Mm -hmm. as if it's a bad thing that you're human, (laughs) right? And that you haven't already like surpassed it. That's, you know, that must be so reassuring for people to hear, you know, because you're right that like we're in a human body, in a human world, as the Buddhists would say, we're living in samsara. Mm -hmm. You can't escape it. And like, why would you want to? Why would you want to escape? Even in the, even in the suffering, there's potentiality within that for growth, for deeper understanding, for connection, for wisdom. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're not trying to get to a place of perfection. We're trying to be where we are now and we're using the tools that we have within our practices 
to support our physical, mental and emotional health. Could you just speak, I'm mindful of your time, um, and I, I just wanted to ask you another short question. You know, what particular practices would you, if there are any, that you encourage people that come to you with diabetes to begin to address? Is there anything specifically you start with as a foundation? I always start with pranayama as a foundation and simple breaths and movement. My training is classically in vini yoga. Um, but understanding that breath is shape change and that directing your breath in specific ways will influence this divine palette of prana and prana being your ability to influence uh, energy or systemic change, <laughs> right? So un understanding how to breathe first and foremost without strain and then bringing that into perhaps more complex movements, should that be warranted, or moving that into practices like yoga nidra, which I think is one of the most valuable resources there is for our modern age. So pranayama, gentle movement, the simple connection of breath to movement depending upon what someone's needs may be, making that more brahmana, so uplifting or strengthening, mm -hmm. or more langana, which would be more reducing, mm -hmm. right? Depending, or maybe both. Also providing experience is of deep relaxation that perhaps someone can experience the state of yoga nidra or simply experience the state of being deeply relaxed. Mm. And that through those practices, there is an opening where one can begin to teach themselves, right? And to let the divine move through them and to continue to infuse their experiences. I. I hope more than anything, like when I work with someone is, I want them to understand that it's not me, it's them. Mm. And that they're the ones that are creating that feeling. They're the ones who are influencing that direction of change. I'm simply offering the same scaffolding that we keep referring to the outline of how one could potentially do that. But it's just a simple way that I'm providing that in my own mind through my experience and offering it as a gift to them. It may or may not serve them. They might need something else, right? Or it might be work and serve a purpose for a temporary period of time and they grow and they evolve and they're ready for something else. Mm -hmm. um, the greatest dharma of a teacher is, is to offer what they have and then not to be attached to um, the results. Mm. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit around how you take care of yourself? Because I think it's really important. It's a foundation really as a yoga teacher, yoga therapist, and also someone that, you know, is holding space for people who 
are turning to you for support in lots of different ways, sometimes in places, you know, of vulnerability yeah. and how, how you look after yourself and navigate through that. I'm a very sensitive person. I'm a, I'm a Pisces with like a cancer rising. <laughs> I feel a lot. So I have to be um, sensitive to my sensitivity and understand that I need a lot of alone time. I need a, a lot of time for being still and having quiet space for myself. I make sure that I provide that for myself every day in some way. I sit every day, even when I don't want to. Mm. But I also am conscious of how that can be its own form of attachment. So I need physical things as well. I, I ride my bike a lot. Um, I like to feel my body. I need exercise as a person with, with diabetes. It really helps um, for my body to move. But I also need time where it's not about doing or <laughs> anything like that, right? It's not about achieving a goal. Um, my most favorite thing that I like hobby that I have um, is fly fishing. I'm like very passionate fly fisher, angler woman. <laughs> I love to be on the river. I love to be in nature and to have that space. And I'm, I'm very um, lucky to have that accessibility um, and the privilege to have that. Um, but I make sure that I do that and that I have a beer or something when I'm doing it. <laughs> you know <laughs> I, it's 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 not all about purity all the time it's about living and enjoying so i hope that answers your question um but i i recognize what where my needs are and what my limits are. I can't push myself too far. If I push myself too far, I need to reel it back. Mm -hmm. And then the moment I go too far energetically or mentally, energetically, I mean by like physically or mentally, it might take double the amount of time for me to regain the ojas or the vitality so that I feel that I can offer from that space again. So I'm very cautious about how far I push myself. Um, but I'm also... I'm also aware of how only diving into practice can be problematic as well. Mm -hmm. And that I need to have time where I'm not focusing on it. You know, and I'm, I'm really having lots of fun. Not to say that practice isn't fun. I love practice, but. It's about having that balance, isn't it? I think it is. It really is. I was just, you've probably not heard of this um before but there is a really really entertaining program about fly fishing that's um on uk tv which you can probably get on youtube i would have thought i'm not sure if it's on the bbc or itv but it's these two comedians mm. who 
were kind of very famous in the 80s and 90s on on terrestrial TV in the UK. And they do a program about fly fishing. And you would think, yeah, you'd you'd have to search it. I don't know what it's called. Um, We'll we'll find it, and we'll when we do the post, we'll we'll tag it. Um, It's with Paul Whitehouse, is one comedian, and I can't remember the other gentleman. But it's really taking it out. Really funny, and it's about humanity it's about life <laughs> it's about growing old <laughs> and it's just wonderful it's uh, it's it's one of those programs where i was like seriously said to my husband are we going to watch a program about people fly fishing i was like this is, seriously are we going to do this and by the end of it i think i'd cried about three times <laughs> it's the most wonderful emotive and compassionate program it's amazing but it's I called know... fishing. What's it gone called? Gone, gone fishing. Okay. And who's the comedians? Paul Whitehouse and let me get back. Where are we? Got them on this tab. Bob Mar- Bob Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse. That's right, because Bob Mortimer had a stroke, didn't he? I think. Really? Yeah, and that and he used fly fishing as his way of stepping out of the world and just just giving himself something to do. And I think that's what caused them to to then start talking about fishing, which is then what allowed the program to be made. But it's fascinating, it's brilliant. <laughs> oh, I could I could do fly fishing all day. I could watch fly fishing stuff all day. I could, it's the only thing, honestly, where I, I forget to eat. <laughs> what got What got you into fly fishing? Um, the competition with my husband. Okay. <laughs> he, um, he, he's an avid angler. And when we first started dating, we would go on these long hikes up to these alpine lakes. We live at 8,000 feet and we would go up, you know, past tree line to these beautiful lakes. And he would always bring a rod and he would be catching these fish. And I'm like, I could do that. I want to do it. And then I started and it would like, it would be, hours would go by something eight hours would go by and it was like I had no concept of time wow yeah I, I don't know how it just grabbed grab it grabbed hold of me it doesn't do that for everyone I find it to be very similar to meditation mm. it's, it's like one pointed concentration and there's a an enormous absorption that happens when you're in the nature and you're feeling uh, the cast. And then if you do catch a fish and then you get to touch it and put it back, it's like you're, you're connecting with something that is so primal <laughs> and yet um, so accessible at the same. It's, it's like something that's so far, but so close at the same time. I don't know how to explain it any better than that, but it's that for those of you out there that are listening and they're like thinking well, fly fishing, I don't know. Um, check it out. It's <laughs> wonderful. I might well do that. My next little, could be my next little hobby, Tai Chi and fly fishing, not at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> tai Chi and fly fishing, the Tai Chi of fly fishing. The <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's been so great to talk to you, Evan. It's been I've learned a lot actually, and I'm really Daniel's got your book currently, so I get it next. So I'm really looking forward to having having a read and and feeling a little bit more informed for my students because I I'm, I'm not I'm not particularly informed around diabetes, so I'm looking forward to feeling more confident. I think that what will be really of service for you um, beyond the diabetes is it's a great manual for understanding what stress is biologically. Mm and how that can show up in many different types of diseases and chronic illnesses and that the pathway that that happens and how yoga is a, an amazing tool for self-regulation. I think that's one of the greatest gifts of that book. And um, it's a lengthy chapter. I almost completely cut it out. And then I was like, you know what? I can't take this out because without this understanding, it, it like misses the whole point of what it's all about. Thank you so much. It's yeah. been been such a wonderful, rich conversation and I'm, I'm sure we will talk again. I look forward to it. Thank you guys for hosting me and letting me share. Oh, you're, oh, so, you're so welcome. Fun. Thank you, Evan. And thank you, Dawn, as well, for being here today. Um, we really appreciate you listening to us today. And if we can offer any other topics or ideas that you would like to hear us discuss or people that you'd like to have us invite on the podcast and please do let us know also please do let us know any feedback um, leave us a review if you use the apple podcast app um, we will certainly be willing to read any feedback or hear any ideas of how we can improve or grow the podcast in any way at all so until next time, thank you so much. Thank you, Evan, for being here. Thank you, Dawn, as ever, for being my work wife. And um, we look forward to listening and hearing from you again soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.